Thanks for your interest in Emmanuel Baptist. Here at Emmanuel, we believe in the one and only authoritative text for guidance, the Holy Bible. We pray that this sermon will speak to your heart and open your eyes to the glory of God. Make sure you plug into your local church and get to know others that love the Holy Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like you. Thanks again, and God bless you guys. Now, these youngsters haven't experienced this yet, but all of you experienced uh, high school or college, and you have exams. And a lot of times you have final exams, and many classes you have midterm exams. I had some classes in seminary, we just had two exams, midterm and final. That was it. 50%, 50%. That's pretty pressure. But midterm exam is kind of check it up and see how you're doing, how the first half of the class is going. And, and I've called this passage here many times uh, Jesus' midterm exam to the disciples. Uh, this is a really a, a turning point in Jesus' ministry, especially with his disciples. Now, um, you may or may not know where Caesarea Philippi is, if you have a, a maps in your Bible, but you have, of course, down south, we have the Dead Sea, and then you go, the Jordan, Jordan River goes up north in the Sea of Galilee, and then above that is where Caesarea Philippi is. This is not Jewish territory. This is Gentile territory. Uh, Jews may be living there, but it's not part of, of Israel, quote-unquote. In Caesarea Philippi, of course, it's named after uh, Caesar Augustus, Caesar Philippi, they're, they're in the side of, of the hills, not really mountain, sides of the mountain there, hills, are uh, numerous pagan temples kind of carved into the rock. Uh, we're not sure exactly what they look like, but we see evidence left behind of niches in the rock, and we think there's a great big temple there to the uh, god Pan, a Greek god. All kinds of, of gods were worshipped there. This was a, a pagan place, not a Jewish place, all kinds of places to worship. So Jesus takes his disciples kind of on a retreat, like we mentioned last week, to this place far up north above the Sea of Galilee, to Caesarea Philippi, where all this paganism is happening. And there, Jesus gives this midterm exam. He, he kind of starts a conversation by saying, well, guys, as, as we're walking up here, uh, what's the scuttlebutt out there? What are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist, which is kind of crazy since they were together at, at one time. And some say, well, you're Elijah, the, the, the prophet of old, or one of the other prophets. He just get them ready. This is the midterm exam then. He asks them, but who do you say that I am? This, this, that's the midterm exam. You've been with me about a year now. You got about a, a year to go before he is crucified. So we, we, we've, you've been with me for a year, guys. What's happening? What, what's your understanding? What's going on? Who do you, the 12, say that I am? And Peter, I think Peter is speaking on behalf of the 12. I don't think it's just Peter speaking here. I think Peter on behalf of the 12 says, you are the Christ. Now, uh, and Jesus kind of, we'll see in just a minute, says, you're, you're right. Now, uh, I want to say what the word Christ, I mentioned before, the word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Christ, Messiah, or identical, which means anointed one. Usually it was a king or a prophet, was anointed by God, but we're talking about the anointed one, the person God's going to send, the Christ, the Messiah. All the Old Testament's pointing to is the Christ, the Messiah. And Peter and the 12 are saying, Jesus, we've been with you for a year, seen you for about two years now, and, and we believe everything the Old Testament is pointing to is pointing to you. That's what they're saying. 
Now, what do Messiahs do? Messiahs do three things. The anointed one does three things. He cleanses or rebuilds the temple. That's one thing he does. We see that later on when Jesus cleanses the temple. He defeats pagan or foreign oppressors. He gets rid of the, the, the enemy, and he brings God's justice. He's a, a righteous king. That's what the Messiah was going to do. Now, most people during that day thought of the Messiah as going to be riding on a white horse and defeating the Romans. That was the main thought they had. Other thoughts, too. So that's kind of, this is, Mark does kind of a, a simplistic way here. I do want you to take your Bibles and turn to the left to Matthew. Matthew 16, this is a, the same passage, parallel passage, but Matthew gives us more. I want us to camp here instead of Mark today. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. Let's look at that. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. Same passage, a little bit more. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man is Jesus' designation for himself. They said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was a Christ. Let's continue. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things for the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, in verse 17, when, when Peter replied to the answer in 16, You are the Christ and the living God, Jesus says in verse 17, You guys got an A+. You are exactly right. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. But implied here is, don't tell anybody about this yet, because you don't understand what that means yet. Yeah, I'll get that in just a minute. But it, it, basically, he says, you guys got an A+. Plus. I am the cross. You have figured this thing out right. See, this confession of Peter on behalf of the 12 is the turning point in the gospel accounts. From this point on, Jesus is going to describe more what he's going to do, and now he's looking toward the cross about a year later. He's looking toward the cross. Everything's going toward the cross now from this point on. So this confession of Peter's and of the 12 is important to us for at least five reasons I want to talk about tonight, today. Number one, I got them here, don't I? Number one, this confession comes from the Father. Now, verse 17 Jesus says to Simon and to the others, and Simon, uh, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He's saying, Peter and the guys, you didn't figure this out by yourself. The Father has revealed this to you through what I've said, my actions, our talks together. You didn't figure it out. God revealed it to you. Good for you. Good for you. So God must be at work in us and in others to confess Jesus as the Christ. 
Anyone who confesses Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, has not figured it out for themselves, but God has shown it to them. You with me? That's been happening in your life too. See, it's a God thing. It's a God thing. People reject Jesus because they reject Jesus, but those who've accepted Jesus do it because the Father has revealed Jesus to him as the Messiah. God must open our minds. God must open our understanding of these things. Every, now listen to this. Everything, everything you know or understand about God has come from God. You're not smart enough to figure it out for yourself. You are not. This is deep spiritual theological truth, and for you to understand that, God's had to work in you by the power of the Spirit. So don't get proud if you know this about the Bible or you know this about Jesus or about this plan. Don't be proud about that because you didn't figure it out for yourself. Now, you might have some hard work and reading and thinking. Sure, it is hard work to understand the Bible, understand theology, understand God's plan in Scripture. And when you do understand parts of it, it's because God's been working in your life. Now, I know you guys know some people who are very smart in the Bible but don't know Jesus, right? They may know more about the Bible than you do, but they just know facts. They don't know Jesus is the Christ. I think what we need to do here, what, what Jesus is saying here in verse 17, is that we must have to make that same confession Peter made. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the center of God's plan. You are God's man. Everything in the Old Testament points to you. Have you made that confession? Have you made the confession that Jesus is Lord? Jesus is the Christ. You have to ask God to show you if that's true. Show, open your heart, open your mind. It's, it's a God thing. To be honest with you, I, I pray almost regularly when I preach anytime, and here in particular, I'm, I'm where I am now, I'm praying for you guys during the week that God will open your heart, open your minds. Mine too, <laughs> as I preach. If you get anything out of any preacher preaching, any teacher teaching, whether it's Sunday school or preacher or whatever, if you get anything out of it, God's got to work in your heart, work in your mind. That's what Jesus is saying here. This confession comes from the Father. Second, this confession builds the church. Verse 18, Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on the rock I will build my church. I will build my church. Now, he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What does that mean? We've had controversies of what this means throughout church history. Now, Roman Catholic friends are going to say, well, that rock is Peter. Peter is the pope. Peter was the first pope in Rome, and he is the foundation of the church, and upon Peter that the church is built. Now, we Protestants reject that understanding. If we agreed to that, we'd be Catholic. We're not Catholic. Others say either what the rock is Jesus is referring to is either Peter's faith in Jesus, Jesus is the Christ, or his confession of that faith. They're very similar. For us to say that Jesus is the Christ or to put our faith in Jesus as the Christ, either way, that's how Jesus builds his church. Now, you've come into the church universal and into this church, in particular, local church in particular, because you have confessed that, because you have faith that way. 
And Jesus builds his church that way. Jesus builds or adds to his church when one has faith or trust in Jesus. That's how he builds the church. Or confesses that Jesus is the Christ of God. Now, Jesus says again, I will build my church. Let me camp here for a second. What, what, what he's saying here. This, he's saying the church is Jesus' church. Let's bring this down to Emmanuel Baptist Church. This church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, is not my church as pastor. This church does not belong to the elders. This church does not belong to the deacons or to Sunday school members, teachers or members. This church does not belong to you, any of you. This is Jesus' church. If it's not Jesus' church, then it's not a real church. It's not Jesus' church. That's right. It's not a real church. This church does not belong to you, whether it's a church universal or this local congregation. It is Jesus' church. Now, I'm going to hesitate to tell this story. Years ago, I knew about this. It's not just a hearsay. This church called, it was not a Baptist church, by the way, but I said material. This church called a, a man to be the youth pastor of the church, and he did a great job. And over the months and years, uh, he built uh, not just the youth program, but others were coming on, on Sunday morning uh, in the fellowship hall and building a great church. And, and, and the elders of that church didn't like it. And I'm not sure the, the dynamics going on there. I wasn't part of the church, but I saw it from the outside. And they, the elders of that church told that youth group, told that youth pastor, and all these people, they had about 200 coming. They said, get out. Leave. Seriously. They said, okay. <laughs> and they left. Started another church down the road, and they're going like gangbusters. They're doing great. But the, uh, my friend who was, had been the pastor and had retired before this happened, it's after his ministry, but he and I were friends, and he told me this later firsthand. He was in the grocery store, and over the aisle, he heard some people talking, as you do at the grocery store, and two ladies talking, and said to one of the other ladies, well, talking about the, the elder at this church, well, he got his church back. Hmm. Well, he did get his church back. It is his church. It's not Jesus' church. I, if I can be rude here, they kicked Jesus out. <laughs> okay. But, sorry, but she said that. Well, this elder, this particular elder got his church back. Hmm. That, that's, that's damning, isn't it? Um, I think he understands not his church. Um. Anybody, anywhere, any church thinks it's their church, whether it's a pastor or a person or anybody, they're way off base. Jesus says, I will build my church. So this Emmanuel Baptist Church, this church right here that we're a part of, this is Jesus' church. And it's for him to do as he likes. And I guess the question during this interim period, during this transitional period, between your past pastor, John, and ex-pastor who's coming in, whenever that is, who it is, I don't know. God knows. What does God, what does Jesus want to do with us now? That's the question. This is his church. Let's listen to him. Let's seek him. What does he want to do in our lives 
in preparation in this transitional period for the next full-time pastor. So as we, as we start this intentional transitional process that you call me to lead us in, let's start praying. Praying for us, praying for the Spirit to guide us, uh, praying, you know, what do you want, Jesus? That, that's part of the process. Who are we? What you want to do here? What's the future hold? Because it is his church. Thirdly, this confession brings forth life. Again, verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell. Now, um, I think most of us here have the ESV translation. It's, it's, it's a very good translation. It's my favorite translation. But they've dropped the ball in this verse. They really have. Uh, the word here is not hell. Other translations translate correctly. The word in Greek is Hades. It is not hell. Now, Hades and hell seem to be very similar. There, there, are, some, there are some differences. But if you have the ESV, this is my biggest beef with them, mark that word hell out, put down Hades. Now, what's Hades? What's the difference? Hades is the place of the dead. That's a Greek understanding. Hades is the place of the dead. I think this verse, this part of the verse, is probably the most misunderstood verse in the church today. I want to try to unpack this part, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We have misunderstood this verse forever, and I'm not sure why, even though some translations have helped us misunderstand it. But the general understanding of this verse, now listen to me, see if this sounds familiar to you. The way I've heard it in the past, and perhaps the way you've heard it taught or preached or you've read about, is that the church is kind of on the defensive. Church is like behind these great big walls, like a, like a castle. The church is, is, is in this place here, and the gates of hell are going to bang against the walls of the church, but the church will withstand is that how you've heard it before? Shake your head, yes or no, to me. Have you? I've heard it all the time. The church is going to stand up to the gates of hell. I want you to understand, I want, I want just to read the verse. That's not, that's not what this verse is saying. Let's just read it. Not interpretation. Let's just read it. Now, it says the gates of Hades. And what are gates? Let's stop for a second. What are, what are gates? Gates are in a wall, or gates are in a fence, whatever it is. Gates in a protective barrier to keep things in or keep things out, right? The picture here is, is a, a lack of a better term, uh, a, a walled city, a fortress that's hell, that's, that's Hades, that's Hades. And there's the gates of Hades, right? You with me so far? It's not the gates of the church, it's the gates of Hades, the gates of the place of the dead. You with me? That's all it says, right? And the gates of Hades shall not prevail. That's a fancy word against it. It meaning what? The church. That's right. That's right. What does prevail mean? It means won't stand up to it. Won't. It will eventually come down. It's a picture here of, of this fortress of Hades, the place of the dead, and they've got gates there, and it's the church on the offensive banging on the gates of Hades, and these gates will not prevail. These gates will come down. You with me? Do, do you see that? It's completely opposite. We've had this mentality, the church is strong and we're defensive. They can't, they can't bust in. That's not what verse is saying. 
The verse is saying the church is on the offense. The church is banging Hades. And those gates, Hades, won't stand up to the church. You with me? With me? That's offensive. On the move. What's happening here, the picture I see here is that the church is reaching into the gates of the place of the dead and grabbing dead people out and bringing them to life. Do you see that? Completely different than our understanding of this. So the church is on the offensive, church is on the move. It's reaching into Hades, the place of the dead, and finding dead people, which is in Hades, and bringing them out to life. The church is not passive. The church is on the move. The church is church triumphant, church militant. You've those words before, I hope. How does the church bang on the gates of Hades and grab dead people out and bring them out? Through evangelism. Through missions. We find dead people. We share Jesus with them. They receive Jesus Christ and they get new life. They become dead and they got new life. So your dead family members and dead neighbors and other people dead spiritually, they're in a place of the dead. They're in Hades, you might say. And when you share Jesus with them and they respond in faith to the cross of Jesus and receive Jesus Christ, they come out of the place of the dead and they come to life. They come into the church. Completely different here. Can you give them life? No, but we're God's instruments as we share with dead people how they come to life. God uses us to share. So this confession that Jesus is the Christ brings forth life to dead people. You were dead once, weren't you? And you've come alive because of Jesus. Fourth, this confession opens heaven. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Now, what, what, we talk about gates. What do keys do? Keys lock and unlock doors or gates or, or whatever it is. It, it, they, they bind and loose. We're talking about authority here that he's given to Peter here authority to lock or unlock, to loose or bind. Now, our Catholic friends say this even just to Peter. In fact, one of the symbols of the Pope is a, is a shepherd's crook, and there's some keys on it. And they take that from this passage here, that Peter has the keys. Okay, it does, he is saying uh, in verse 19, I will give you in singular, Peter, the keys. But turn just a page over to the to the uh, right, to chapter 18 of Matthew, in verses 15 to um, 20, he's talking about if a brother sins against you. But look at verse 18 of chapter 18. Jesus says, truly I say to you, plural, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Same words. But he's given that to the whole church. You, plural, not just to Peter. He's given to you and me, I think, in chapter 16 as well, giving the church the keys to lock and unlock, to bind and unbind. One of my heroes is George Washington. Oh, what, a, what a man, a man of God, too. 
And Karen had an opportunity uh, some years ago to go to Mount Vernon in, uh, in Virginia to visit uh, his place and visit his home. And it's neat to see uh, different artifacts that owned, he owned, the house he lived in, the, the bed he slept in, see his grave, uh, to see a desk he worked at, and, and so forth. But it's interesting, I don't understand this, but of all the artifacts, all the things I saw that belonged to George Washington, the thing that impressed me the most was in his house. He went from the, the, the entryway into the back way, it's a little small hallway, and up here on the wall, they had, a, had it glassed in, was a key about that big that was given to him by Lafayette. It was a key to the Bastille. You remember the Bastille? That was the, the French prison that when the French Revolution started, but he had later on given George Washington's a gift, a key to the Bastille. That would just, just, just impress me so much, a historical artifact from the Bastille. Now, you may not care about that. It really impressed me. <laughs> you know, and that was, but that was authority to open or unlock the jail a jailer would have. It's a big key, big iron key about this big, you know, and that's what keys do. I've, I've got keys here. I've got keys in my car. Of course, today we got these beeper things, you know, get you in the car, unlock, but key to my house and key for blah, blah, blah. I have authority. I haven't been given the key to this church yet, so I don't have the authority yet. So, uh, okay. Uh, but this means I have authority to get in my house or get in where other jobs I have and so forth. That's what keys are. They're, they're authority. And see what... Jesus saying here in verse 19, he's given to Peter and to the church the keys of heaven. He's given us the authority to allow someone to the kingdom of God or not. Now, how do we have authority? How, how do we, what if you bind on earth to be bound in heaven, and what do you loose on earth to be loose in heaven? The keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom is the gospel. When we share the gospel with someone, and they receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have unlocked the door of heaven for them. The only way that anyone can come into the kingdom of God is by confessing Jesus as Christ. And how has God ordained that to happen? For you and me to share the gospel. For the church to share the gospel, that is God's plan A, is for the church to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what plan B is? There is no plan B. There's just plan A. So if we share the gospel, the heavens will be open to people. If we don't share the gospel, it won't be open, right? This is the only way is for us to share the gospel. We have the, the authority. We have the keys of the kingdom to share with people, and they can come to faith, and they can come in. If we are quiet and we don't say anything, we're, we're, we're binding we're not letting people in to the kingdom. This confession opens heaven. This confession that you are the Christ points to the cross. So, so far, verses 13 through 19 in Matthew 16, he's given them the midterm exam. They've got an A+. Plus. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let me, let me, I need to back up for a second. When Peter and the 12 said, you are the Christ, you've got to think like Peter thought in the first century, not like we think in the 21st century. We are on this side of the cross. We have 2,000 years of church history and church theology to work through. 
we know that Jesus is God in the flesh. We know that he is God. We know that he is God's son. We know he is God the son. We know that. He's part of the, the Trinity. Okay, that, that's exactly right. But I tell you, Peter was not thinking that then. A Jew in the first century is looking for the Messiah, and he is God's man, but he is not God. There is no one but God. Think about our Muslim friends today. No one but Allah. He has no consort. He has no son. It's just Jews had a very similar thinking. And we do too, in a sense. There's one God, nothing else. But Peter, as an as a observant Jew, religious Jew of the day, you are the Christ. You are God's man. He would never say, oh, Jesus, you are God. He would never say that. Now, Peter comes to that conclusion later, after the cross, and so forth. He comes like, yes, he does. At this point, he's not thinking God at all. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Don't read into it that you're God the Son. Peter's not thinking that. You with me? You with me with that? Now, he says, you're, you're very important, Jesus. You mean, you're God's man, but he would never say that he is God at this point. I think that's important. But, fifthly, this points to the cross. Now, Verse 20, so 13 through 19, they got an A plus, Jesus is doing great, and on this rock, on this confession, we'll my church, and the gates of Hades won't prevail against it, I'm going to give you the keys again, this is good stuff, good stuff, good stuff. Verse 20, then Jesus strictly charged disciples to tell no one that he's the Christ. He's saying, yes, you guys are right, I am the Christ, but don't tell anybody. In parentheses, he's saying, you don't understand what that means yet. You don't understand what that means yet. Yes, I am the Christ. You're thinking I'm going to come on a white horse and defeat the Romans. We'll be the number one nation again. Yes, but not now. <laughs> I got to go to the cross to be the Savior of the world. Because look what he says in verse 21. From that time, beginning at this time here, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And the disciples are going, what? What, what? what are you talking about? Verse 22, and Peter took him aside. He didn't want to do it in front of all the guys. He, he kind of takes Jesus aside, and, and he rebukes Jesus. He says, no way, Jesus. Pardon me. No way, Jose. Because, because why? Because messiahs don't die. Messiahs win. Messiahs win. Cleanse, cleanse the temple. That, that temple outfit there in Jerusalem is corrupt. It's terrible. The messiahs will come and clean that out and make it right. They're going to defeat the Roman army. He's going to have justice as king of the universe or king of Israel. That's right. But you understand yet, Peter, that I've got to go to the cross. Jesus, messiahs don't die. A dead Messiah is a contradiction of terms. You can't die, Jesus. That, that's, not, that's not the deal. The deal is you're going to win. Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and again to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus, he turned and said to Peter, in fact, Mark says he turns and sees the disciples. They see them looking on. And says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Oh, my gosh. A plus to a big F, right? Satan. Satan really means the tempter. 
You're tempting me, Peter. Get behind me, you tempter. You are a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. The things of God is the cross. i got to go to the cross to die for the sins of mankind. And you're trying to keep me from my main purpose. You have your thing, you have your thinking on the things of man, which is victory. You with me? See, they're clueless. They're completely clueless. And they, there's no reason for them to be clued in at this point. Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Christ, but don't tell anybody yet because you don't understand what that means yet. You think you do, but you really don't. I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got to suffer. I've got to die. And I've got to be raised on the third day. Peter says, die? No way. No way. You're going to win. Get behind me, Satan. You're tempting me. When Jesus was in, after his baptized, was, was driven to the, into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and he was tempted by Satan for those 40 days. And, and if he's, you've seen those three different temptations that Satan gives him, Satan was trying to tempt Jesus to be a different kind of Messiah. Be a Messiah where you can feed everybody. Take the this, this stone and make a bread. Just feed everybody. Be a Messiah uh, where you will worship me and I'll give you everything. Be a Messiah, uh, a, a miraculous Messiah, a, a spectacular Messiah. Get on the top of the temple and jump and not get hurt. Those are the ways you can be a Messiah. And Jesus is working through this in, in the wilderness and he's saying, no, to be a Messiah means go to the cross. That's what Messiah means. Peter, you don't understand this yet. Don't tell anybody yet. You're right, but you're wrong. So the next year, as Jesus goes towards, of course, as you know the scriptures already, the the disciples just don't get it. They just don't get it. And there's no reason for them to get it yet until after the cross and the ascension and Pentecost and working through those things. The cross is what Jesus is as the Messiah. This is God's plan. God's plan throughout all the Old Testament, God's plan is that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. And this suffering servant in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant dies for the sins of mankind. That's what this suffering servant, this Messiah does. And he'll be resurrected. And there'll be new life for people. That's the kind of Messiah I want to be, Peter. You don't understand a word I'm saying, Peter. I, I, I don't expect you to. But that's what it is. So don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah yet. Who do people say that I am? You are the Christ. So the question is for this hour now for you, have you made that confession? That Jesus is the Christ. That he is God's man. He's God's Messiah. He's God's plan to save the world. There's no other way. God's plan is through Jesus, through the cross of Jesus, to save the world. No other way. You enter the kingdom through repentance of your sin, placing your faith in who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross for you. You surrender to his lordship. You surrender to him as king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is king of your life. We do that personally. And then we really need to do it publicly, like a public profession of our faith. And if you've not done that, today is a day of salvation, the psalmist says. Second, if you've made that confession, and most of you here probably have, who do you know who needs to make this confession? 
somebody in your family, in your household, in your extended family, a neighbor, person you work with, person you associate with? Does someone come to your mind immediately when I said that, that needs to make this confession? They're not in the kingdom. They're still in Hades. <laughs> they haven't made that confession, and they made that confession. If you've got a person in your mind, just put that person in your mind, pray for them. Pray that God will open their hearts, open their minds. Pray for them. Pray for an opportunity to share with them the love of Jesus through actions, verbalizing, through both of them. So that person you have in your mind, pray for them and pray for an opportunity to share the love of Jesus with them and pray that God will open their minds. Peter made this confession because God worked in his heart and understood that. Your friend who's, who's lost, you can't talk him into it. You can share and you can give a witness, but pray God will open his heart or her hearts and mine. They'll make that confession that Jesus is the Christ. You see, friends, Jesus will build his church. He will build Emmanuel Baptist Church using you and using me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for Matthew's rendering of this experience. He was there. He saw the whole thing. He made A plus on the midterm exam. Thank you for, sh for him sharing more of what's going on here and how what it means to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, uh, what it means for us to make that confession, what it means for you to let go to let go and let you build this church. We love you. Thank you for showing us our sin and showing us our need for a Savior and showing us the Savior on the cross who died for our sins. Thank you for accepting our trust and faith, for bringing us in the kingdom of God, placing us in this local church. We're so grateful for that. Would you use us? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.